As we continue our study in the book of John, we begin again in verse 11 of chapter 3. Jesus has been talking uh, for the first uh, 10 verses, obviously, to Nicodemus, a teacher of the Jews, one of the 70, a ruler among the people. And in verse 11, we pick up there, truly, truly, or verily, verily, amen, amen. It is a notation in the way he introduces his statement. This is important. Take note of this. He says there, I say to you, we speak of what we know and testify of what we have seen, and you do not accept our testimony. If I told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven, but he who ascended from heaven, the Son of Man. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, so, so that whoever believes will in him have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. He who believes in him is not judged. But listen to this. He who, judge, excuse me, he who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. This is the judgment, that the light has come into the world and men love the darkness rather than light for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does not, or excuse me, for everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But he who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifested or exposed as having been wrought in God. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you this afternoon for children. What a heritage. Even as I was sharing with one of the grandparents here on the front row, what a joy to be in a church where children and teen choirs are still a vital ministry. And uh, we know that there's so much uh, focus on social media and personal music and individual uh, um, leaders in that, that world of entertainment. And people want to make a name for themselves. But Father... <laughs> You inhabit the praises of your people. And there's something about choral music and people blending their voices, some strong and clear and on key, others of us just make a joyful noise, but together the Spirit combines into praise and we thank you. We thank you for that gift tonight. Just a reminder, even through their young voices, the eternal truth, Jesus loves me, this I know for the Bible tells me so. Father, open up your word to our hearts and our minds. Let us not remain in our darkness. Let us not be afraid of the exposure of the light. Let us come to you willingly, freely, readily, and fully tonight as we stand before you and as, as Samuel of old, Lord, speak, your servants listen. For it's in Christ's name we pray these things. Amen. As we begin tonight, I want you to hear again these words in verse 11. 
Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and testify of what we have seen, and you do not accept our testimony. If I told you earthly things, and I have, and you do not believe, how will you believe it if I tell you of heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended, that is, the only one who's ever ascended into heaven, as if it was already a done deal, a foregone conclusion, he says the only one who has ever ascended into heaven is the one who has now descended into the earth, that is, who has come as the Son of Man. He's referencing himself. Look with me in these three verses we begin. As we see, first of all, we are lacking in our senses. We are lacking in our senses. Now, I'm not trying to be unkind to you or inclusive. You say, well, wait a minute, I, I've got all faculties. I, I'm, I'm not maybe the sharpest knight in the drawer, but I've got my full senses. I'm not doubting that you have in that, in that sense of the word all your senses. But we as human beings are lacking in our senses. He was referring to this or saying this again in the context. He's just been speaking with Nicodemus, a leader of the people. And as he recognized him right there at the uh, end of our last passage in verses 1 through 10, he, can you being a teacher of the Jews or the teacher of the Jews? He was a heralded professor of truth in the, Judish, Judea, the Jewish world at the time. A teacher of the Old Testament that lacked very few or had very few peers. Now, as we look at this, first of all, we need to understand that what he's saying is, first of all, we're lacking in our senses in the sense that we have developed ideas. I, I am very, very aware that there are more than just changes or the rapid increase in information that we see today with the internet and how information itself is increasing. The amount of information being produced, being uh, heralded, being told is exponentially higher than it was when I was the ages of these children this evening. It is rap We are living in a fast-paced world like none other. Now, I understand Generate the last few generations especially with the coming on of the industrial age, and now we're living in the information age, I understand that people have been saying, oh, things are going so much faster than when I was a kid. That's true, but they really are. They're not just getting faster by the generation, they're getting faster by the day. And we are being inundated with a lot of facts and figures, and many of those are couched in a perspective, a secular perspective, that does not come off as uh, on the front page or the top fold of the newspaper or the headline on your news feed on, on your computer. But it, the, we need to understand those facts are being couched from a worldly perspective, a very carnal and secularized perspective. And the scripture says here, look with me again in verse 11. Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know. That is, I'm telling you as an eyewitness of truth of reality and you don't believe us about physical things about earthly things about things that can be understood you don't you don't understand our perspective here but how if you cannot understand those things do you think you have enough sense enough insight enough capacity or capability or competency to understand spiritual things which are far above 
Years ago, we were on a, a flight, and uh, Wendy and I, I, I don't really like the window. It's not because I don't like looking out. I, I will lean over and look out if I can, but, but I mean, I'm six foot four, 200, none of your business. And, and the, the window seat just gets kind of tight sometimes, so I like to, you know, if I need to, lean over in the aisle, at least when that lady's cart doesn't come and take my shoulder out uh, from behind. But uh, we, were, we were taking off, and it was raining. And uh, it, was, it was just dreary, and no, I mean, it was just a bad morning if you weren't inside. And uh, so we got, we got started. Finally, our flight was cleared for takeoff, and we took off. And what had, I thought, you know, been a you know, miserable weather day, all of a sudden, within just a few minutes, we had reached our cruising altitude, just over 10,000 feet, I think, at that point, is what the pilot said, if I remember correctly. And, you know, I looked out, that, they, they raised the little shutter on the window, and wow, it was as bright as any day you'd ever been. We looked everywhere, sunshine, as far as the eye could see, and just below the wingspan, clouds. Now, what you and I understand tonight, the sun was always shining. But my perspective was limited from my capacity to see. Now, I could have probably thought through, you know, hey, you know, if we get up so far, it's going to be fine, and, we, you know, it'll be bright and it'll be sunny and where we're going the weather said it was going to be nice so it'll be all right but at the moment of takeoff my mind was still on man it is just damp and dreary and wet oh wow I think that's the kind of thing that we need to understand happens spiritually we get caught up as believers as people and we see things because of what we're getting from our ground level from the human realm what we have already received in past. And let me just tell you, in the words of Vody Bauckham, who I, I, you know, I understand Vody is a, uh, <laughs> I'm like, well, let me back up. I'm more and more quoting dead men only, okay? <laughs> I'm just, where, I'm at the age where I don't know where everybody's going to turn out. I'm not sure I want to quote them because everything's recorded. And, you know, I don't want to say thus and such said so and so. And, and that guy go off the deep end. But Vody Bauckham said something that at least caused me to think. Why would we be surprised if we send our children to Rome and they come home daily thinking like Romans? Why would we send our children to a secular world, whether it be school or whether it be what we allow into our homes through media and computer and all the gaming and all the things that are part of the world system now and believe that they're going to be spiritually minded that they're even going to have a capacity to see the spiritual as we had hoped and where, how we pray they would if they spend, again, most of their time in Rome. Several years ago, before I came on staff at Bellevue, I was a bivocational pastor, and my full-time work at that moment for a few years was the Bible, one of the Bible teachers, that is, at Briarcrest Christian High School here in our city. I had a joyful time, loved those kids, love being in their midst, being able to joke with them and then have the confidence of being able to, uh, confidence from them to, for them to ask questions. I love the interaction, the, 
back and forth. I, I didn't always say, hey, here's that answer immediately. Sometimes they ask some really good questions. I say, you know, I don't know. But let me look it up. And on Friday, when we have a little time, after everything is done, after the weekly quiz or exam is done, I'll come back and we'll address questions from this week. It was a great time. But early on, uh, we, we would have, uh, in the early stages of their high school, uh, we had a required survey class, Old, uh, Old Testament in the fall, New Testament in the spring. And it was basically a freshman-level class. After that, they got to choose their second credit uh, for graduation, a second year-long credit. And uh, so we did, in that survey of, of freshmen, we did a, uh, uh, an analysis of what their spiritual involvement was, what, you know, what they did for daily quiet time, if they had that, if they knew what it was, and ask them, how much time do you on average spend at your local church, whatever it may be, how much time every week? You know what the average was? One hour. One hour at the church. Now, please understand, I'm not telling you. I was raised. My class knows I'm Mike Crouch. I'm a recovering legalist. All right? Uh, I understand that church attendance is not equated to spiritual maturity. I get all that. But if you're never around the truth, how are you going to really understand and, and incorporate the truth into your life? But I also did my own little survey. The week that the survey results came out, we found out that our, our freshmen and any sophomores typically that might have not taken it the first year, if they only spent one hour a week, what were their influences? So I went online. I don't know what the music service was that time, but I, I did some searching online and I found the number one downloaded song, pop music song, on that previous week, same week they'd taken the survey. And it came from a group that I did not know, had no cognizance of their music or style, and still can't tell you what the name of the, the group was. It was something and something, but I didn't know it at all. And when I said, okay, that I got the, the group, I got the song, let me download and print off the lyrics. So I just know what, what is the message that most of our children, I know Briarcrest may not be the average of all American or worldwide teenagers or what, whoever's downloading, but it, but it gives us a, a sense. Our kids are going to know that. And let me tell you, tonight... I would not have dared even brought that piece of paper into this room because of the filth that was in that room. And what we did know back then, which is I think higher now, that the average student, high school age student, was spending somewhere in the average of seven to eight hours a day online. Okay? Say, so how do they do that and go to school? <laughs> They do. They do. Let me tell you, if I'm spending that amount of time listening to lyrics repeatedly, because you know if you listen to a song, no matter what genre you enjoy, if you listen to the song seven times, it is forever ingrained in your memory. You say, that's not true. I can't remember the words of that song, and I know I've heard it more than seven times. It doesn't mean that you can regurgitate it 
at a moment and sing on pitch in a moment. It just means that you will remember that in some form and you'll remember, hey, I know what that was about. You'll get the sense of it and never be able to release it. It's in your mind whether you can pull it up at that moment or not. And I asked my kids after the survey was out and I kind of gave them a summary of what we'd found out. I said, now listen, let me ask you. If y'all are telling me that you yourselves, this group, spends only one hour a week in your local uh, group of believers, that is whatever church activities you're a part of, but one hour, let's just say that's typically with your family you go on a Sunday morning. Most of you are evangelicals. If you're not, you kind of know what that looks like. Okay, yeah, they're all agreeing with me at this point. I said, now most of the evangelical churches about, Brother Sam, about half is music and half is preaching. We get a little more on the preaching, right? (laughs) But here it is. Half an hour versus 49 to 56 hours a week. Who's winning their minds? Yes, I do. But let me just tell you, we can, we can worry about our teenagers. But I want to ask you, senior adults and median adults and moms and dads that are here tonight, what are you listening to? Because Nicodemus was no teenager. Nicodemus was not a man who had no clue about the, what the world was like, how life worked out. He had no excuse, and yet he could not accept what God was telling him, God, the God-man, Jesus Christ, was telling him in the earthly realm, how could he even be expected to understand, truly insightfully understand spiritual things? We are lacking in our senses. And you say, well, I, I, I know I'm not like Nicodemus. Great, I hope you have a different spirit, but let me tell you this. You're likely not more informed than Nicodemus spiritually. I've been a pastor for 35 years in one way or another. I have been serving churches. And let me tell you, the number one concern on my heart at this moment is the biblical illiteracy of God's people. You say, well, you're being very harsh on us. I want to challenge you to listen to God's word, to hear what God's saying. To ask yourselves, not what have you been developed in your ideas to think by the world around you, but what does it say when truly, truly is before your eyes? What does God say? I want to ask you, look with me again in verse 12. If I told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe it if I tell you heavenly things? I want to tell you, it's not that he couldn't have understood anything heavenly, but it is less likely he will receive them to even consider them and understand them because his mind has put a filter built by the world in which he had developed around him. Religiosity for Nicodemus, it may be rebellion and secularism today, but whatever we have allowed to be the influence of our lives and what we are allowing, let me tell you, until you and I see Jesus face to face, there's always his challenge to be being transformed. You're not done. You're not, you know, we, if anything has been happening since COVID, to me, it's like, God, I am not finished. 
I am not done. I am tired in, on some days. I am weak, and I know I am, I am desperately in need on others. But Lord, even as I'm conscious of that, do not let me give up seeking after you. Do not let me be the same fella three years from now that I am today before you. May my life be more like Jesus. May I think the thoughts of God after him. May the renewing of my mind, like Romans 12, 1 and 2 talks about, be further in its course that you intended than it is today. Lord, do not let me be the same man today that I, am, that I was yesterday. And don't let me be tomorrow what I am today. The Scripture here is calling us to this kind of recognition that we lack sense because we have accepted the temporal facts and often rejected the transcendental truths of God's Word. Verse 13. No one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. You see, not only are we lacking in our senses because of our developed ideas, but we are also lacking in senses because of our depraved inability. You and I need to stop thinking we can do life for the Lord. You and I need to start saying, God, if you're going to live your life through me, only one man has ever been able to do it, and his name is Jesus Christ. And if he's, it's going to be done today, Jesus, you're going to have to wear me like a glove and live your life through me because I am incapable of doing anything. I cannot in any measure ascend toward heaven on my own effort. I am not good enough. The Bible says it clearly. Romans, 12, uh, Romans chapter 3, verse 23. All have sinned and are now even falling short of the glory of God. You understand, you and I are in a constant state of sin. Apart from Jesus, we are desperately enabled to do anything of spiritual merit. The scripture here tells us, first of all, we're lacking in our senses. Second, read with me in verse 14 and following. Jesus begins to offer an illustration of what he's been talking about. What is essential? What is the thing that must be said? He says, again in verse 14, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. So that whosoever or whoever believes will in him have eternal life. Verses 14 and 15, first of all, are referencing, if you want to take your finger and put it there in uh, John 3, look with me to Numbers, Numbers chapter 21. If you get past the fifth book of the Bible, you've gone too far, okay? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers is number four, and then Deuteronomy. But we're in Numbers chapter 21, or we will be. And it says, beginning in verse four, read with me there. Find there with me. Now, I'm giving chapter 21 and verse four for context of what's about to happen in this serpent that's lifted up. Verse 4 says, Then they set out from Mount Hor by the way of the sea to go around the land of Edom, and the people became, what? Impatient. Because of the journey. Are we there yet? No. 
but we're further than we've been. When are we going to get there? I don't know. We're just following the Lord. Well, when, what did he tell you when we're going to be there? He didn't. He just said, follow me. Scripture here, verse 5, goes on. The people spoke against God and Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe, that is, we hate with a hatred, this miserable food. The Lord, it didn't even say the Lord talked about it in the council of the Trinity. It just says immediately, The Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, so that many people of Israel died. So the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned because we have spoken against the Lord and you. (laughs) Absolutely. Intercede with the Lord, that is, pray for us before Him, that He may remove the serpents from us. And Moses interceded for the people. Then the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a standard, that is, a stick, a pole, and it, and it shall come about that everyone who is bitten, when he looks at it, he will live. And Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on the standard, and it came about that if a serpent bit any man, when he looked to the bronze serpent, he lived. Now I want to tell you, scholars tell us, most likely, not, not conclusively, but most likely, this is what is called today a carpet viper. It is a very deadly snake. And even as of last June, report that I found, reports that I read, there is still no universally effective antivenom for the carpet viper. Now, whether it's a carpet viper or what, these men and women who were rebelling against the Lord and now had been bitten by the snakes that were among them, were dying. And they, whether we have one or not, they did not have an antivenom. And God said, I'm not going to do for them what they must do for themselves, but I will do what they cannot do for themselves. I'm going to provide a way of salvation. I'm going to set it before them, And they don't have to do anything in their own power to receive healing except look to what I've done. Look to what I have provided. Look at the viper. Look at the snake on the pole, on the standard, and they will be be able to live. They'll be healed. Do you not understand? That's another pre-incarnate gospel message. You and I don't work for our salvation. Nothing that we do, walking an aisle, praying a prayer, being baptized, all of that has its place and it's important in its place. But nothing saves us that we do. The salvation that you and I received is God's working on our behalf based on His provision in the one who was lifted up, Jesus Christ. Look me back in John chapter 3. John chapter 3 tells us, Again, in Jesus' words, that's, and you know, when you see red print on white paper, you, you know that it's as true as everything else. It's not more true than the black print. It's not less true because it's all the Word of God. But when Jesus is saying it, 
And he says, truly, truly, that is, give me your attention because I'm about to say something not only that is true because I cannot lie, but also it's important. He says these words in verse 15. So that whoever believes will in Him, that is the one who has been lifted up, the Son of Man, have eternal life. There is a consuming power to our sin. The longer the venom of the serpent continues to pulse through our veins, the more dead we become to the truth. Why do I rejoice in these choirs? even among the smallest ones? Because what they're learning, whether they realize it or not, is gospel truth. They don't have to understand all the words they're saying, but they do need to know them because the Holy Spirit will bring to their remembrance in due time those words that they've learned. When I was that age, and I can remember, some of you can't remember being that age. I can still remember being that age. But here it is. I learned at sitting on a pew, just like you're sitting in, next to my mom and dad, they sat about where this couple is, about four rows back every Sunday. I learned the song, the hymns of the faith back then, small. We, if we had 100 on Sunday morning, we thought, well, Pentecost must be happening. We sang out of the Baptist hymnal. I believe it was number 165 saying, Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. It was great, listen to this, great theology. Great theology. It was grace that taught my heart to fear. And grace, that same grace, my fears relieved. Do you understand? He's the God of all grace. It's gracious when God calls you to fear the judgment and the condemnation of a holy God that you and I stand deserving of. That's grace. People, there are folks who live uninformed, ignorant, if you will, unaware of their sin of their lostness, of the raging venom of sin in their blood, in their lives, in their very being. And oh, what grace it is to realize I'm dying and I have no antivenom in myself. I have no ability to produce that or buy that or accumulate that. I can't do it. What must I do? Look to the one who's been lifted up. Simply look. Believing what He has said, when you look to Him, if I be lifted up, I'll draw all men to myself. The reality is, we are lacking in our senses. Oh, and we are languishing like those Israelites of old. We are languishing in our sin. We're languishing. We, we don't, you know, you, if you've ever been bitten, by a snake. And you're not treated. Folks, 
the, the neurotoxins and the, and the blood toxins and, and the, the toxins that begin to break down the very flesh, all different kinds of, of venom and, and the effects. Oh, my friend. How's that working out for you? How is the venom coursing through your life? Sin, how has it taken over your life? What more must you lose? What more sensory perception? What must, what strength, what relationship, what hope must you lose in order to understand you are lost and in need of a Savior because you're a sinner. You're a sinner apart from Him. But all He asks, all He requires is you look unto Him and trust that He is able to heal you. And life is is available. (laughs) He says, all they that look, they shall live. They shall live. And the one who's lifted up as the fulfillment of the type of that serpent, the Savior Himself, when we look to Him, it's not just that we're going to regain a physical life that we will have to die in later, but we receive eternal life, not just longevity, but a qualitative difference of life because He lives in us now. Those of us who have lacked our senses and yet God by His grace has reminded us and shown us how languishing we are in our sin. Third this evening, if you look with me in verse 16, I I, I was just amazed. I've never read this passage before. (laughs) No, I've had it many times and so have you. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him (laughs) shall not perish, shall not die eternally, but have eternal life. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through Him. Now here it is, third point. We're not only lacking in our senses, We are languishing in our sin as well, and we are loved in our state. I'm not talking about Tennessee. I'm talking about in that state of sin. But God, according to Romans, but God commended, manifested, revealed, showed, and put on display His love for you and me in that while we were yet, that is, while we were still sinners sinning, Christ died for us. The reality is tonight that we are, lost, we are loved not because we're good, but because He's good. Not because we're worthy, because He's worthy. Not because He is able, excuse me, not because we are able, because He is able. Scripture here says, first of all, God so loved. God so loved. I want to tell you, a lot of folks say, oh, I just love John because he just talks about Jesus loving us and he's so sweet and so kind. He's just so good. I love reading the Gospel of John. Not like that Old Testament God. Man. Yeah. That Old Testament God, I, I just... Friends, I want to tell you, There is a Hebrew word, some folks pronounce a little differently, spell it differently for sure in in our English ears or how we would write it out in English. 
But the word that, as I learned it from Corky Ferris years ago, kessed. Sometimes it's H-E-S-E-D, sometimes C-H-E-S-E-D. It's the word for loving, tender kindness. And it is all through the Old Testament. God loves all the time. There's never been a time when we have not been the very focus, the apple of his eye, the desire of his heart. Since the fall, even before the fall happened, he knew it was going to happen. He has loved us before it was ever a need in this earthly kingdom, this earthly realm. God had already intended, already put it down as done that the lamb would be slain and our redemption would be provided for. He's always loved us. God so loved the world that he gave. Not only do we see God's goodness in his love, even though we're in this state of sin, but we also need to understand the gift that he gave, he gave his, his son. He, he, in the triune wisdom of God, the Father <laughs> conceived the plan. The Son enacted the plan. The Holy Spirit continues to announce and convince us, convict us of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment to let us understand the plan. But the whole heart of God, the triune Godhead, has always been intended on showing us love through sacrifice. What a gift. You remember years ago, not too many, but MasterCard had its series of commercials where it'd say, you know, car, you know, limousine rental. $300. Nice meal, $300. Her joy or her happiness, priceless. <laughs> I'm so grateful I married Wendy. <laughs> she, well, I, I did that. You know, I, I, she'll tell you. Now, not that she's unromantic. Please don't. She is. But she says he's the expressive romantic. I want to show her in ways that I think she'll enjoy how I love her. But one time, we, <laughs> while I was at Briarcrest, now you folks that are like me, common, I grew up in southern middle Tennessee. There is nothing significant about where I grew up, okay? It was home and still home, and I love my folks and love the people back there, enjoy being there when I can, but nothing the world would say was spectacular about it. But let me tell you, I really want to do something. And I'd been praying, Lord, I, I just want to take her tonight. I, don't, I know there's a few names of some restaurants here in Memphis. That I, I just want to take her out. When we get out for, some, uh, excuse me, for Christmas break, I'm going to take Wendy to a nice restaurant. Well, there was two football players that were brothers. One of them graduated with the fellow you might remember, Michael Orr, that, that year, that falling spring. But his younger brother, on behalf of both of them that I had, they just, you know, they bring Christmas cards or whatever. They bring you, you know, jar of candy. And I'm like, really? <laughs> you know the time I spend trying to get ready to teach you hoodlums about Jesus? And you give me, you know, hard candy? Okay, well, anyway. But one, <laughs> I'm not being proud. I'm, I'm just, 
you know, just laughable. This young man brought me a card. He's real quiet, real big lineman type, real quiet, kind of, you know, stumbles, you know, forward into the room, comes up to me, and I, he's not really one to come up to the desk anytime, and he hands me a card. He said, Merry Christmas, Dr. Crouch. Well, thank you, sir. I put it in the little pile of things that had come that day. It was about one day or two days before break. I said, I appreciate that. Merry Christmas to you and your family, too. So I get home, and I've, I've gathered all this up into some probably Walmart bag, got it home, opened it up on the table, and all these things. And Wendy said, oh, I like that candy. And I said, great, you can have it. And then I started opening the cards. So I'm going, you know, Merry Christmas. Thank you for a semester. You know, I've learned so much, blah, blah, and hope you and your family enjoy it. That's nice. Well, I just thought that card from the young man, the football player, was the same thing. Well, I opened it up. It was a gift certificate for $75 to one of the nicest restaurants in town. And I went, I said, Wendy, let's do this. She said, I don't know. I said, $75? How can any two people eat $75 worth of food in one meal? I'd never done that. We had never done that. We went to this particular restaurant. She got, a, she got a menu. I got a different menu. Mine had the prices on it. <laughs> you know where they seated us? The farthest place from the front door possible. I was in for the count. And I looked in that, that gift certificate. Bought, I, think, I think it got our unsweetened tea in the appetizer. I was like, oh my goodness, what, wait, we're going to have to, I'm sorry, this is terrible news, we're going to cancel Christmas <laughs> to get out, either that or I'm going to spend the next two weeks of break washing these dishes. She laughed and she said, well, oh, well, we'll just, but she's like, I don't, I don't, we got through and we, I mean, even to this day, she says, no, we go buy it several times a week. No, don't have any interest going there. No, just uncomfortable. You say, why are you telling that story? Because that gift provided by man, it was an encouragement. It was a And please understand me, I was encouraged. It was a very nice gift. But it was insufficient. No matter what man tells you, what man gives you, what accolades, what encouragement he gives you, man nor you as a man or woman can ever fully address the issue of sin. It was a gift born in heaven provided on a cross and received not by works of righteousness, mm, no, but by simply trusting, believing in the one who was lifted up. Finally, as we look at this passage very quickly, I'm going to look at my clock and I, I'm take, I've taken two of the three minutes I gave you last week. So let's just, just I'm going to, I'm sorry, I'm going to do this real, real quick. Here it is. For God did not send the world into the, get, for God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. Verse 17 needs to be remembered just as much as verse 16. Because we're not telling a good news that people don't need to hear. 
that has no, well, you can take it or leave it. You need to understand we're not condemning people by telling them they're sinners. We are encouraging them. We are loving them as God loved them because the world is already condemned. It's not that they, we condemn them by telling them the gospel. They're already under judgment. They're sons and daughters of perdition. When we tell the gospel, we're saying, hey, this is what you need to get out of the judgment that you're already in. It's not that we're trying to make you lost. You're lost all along. You were born in sin. You've committed sin. You've confirmed yourself to be a sinner. And now because you're already under judgment, we're telling you here's the key to get out of the condemnation. Here's the reprieve that your soul is looking for. Let me tell you, folks, the most wonderful, loving thing you can do is say, every one of us is a sinner in need of the Savior. God didn't send this Son to condemn the world, to judge the world, to make the world feel bad and, and, and destitute and desperate for anything that God might give them. No, no. He came in order to tell them, look, you're already in a desperate situation. I am the remedy. You don't have to remain in judgment. You don't have to remain condemned. By believing in me, you can know, you can know freedom from the condemnation that you may not acknowledge, but you've always borne upon your heart your soul, and your spirit.